You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hey, humanists, this is Nathan Gilmore. This is a special edition of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and I'll be talking with Dreas Sanchez. Dreas and I met at Theology Beer Camp in California in January of 2017, and he and I were interacting on Facebook a little while ago about Reza Aslan's 2013 book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Dreas asked if he could pose some questions to me, and I said, hey, if you want to, we could have that conversation, record it, make it a podcast so that some people can benefit from it. Dreas was very ministry-minded, was fine with that, so what you're about to hear is our conversation about Reza Aslan. Now, I'll go ahead and say that the first several minutes of the podcast, uh, to kind of introduce Dreas's personality, we've got him telling a story about his viewing of the most recent Super Bowl, the one where the team, which shall not be named, uh, defeated the Atlanta Falcons in the first ever overtime Super Bowl. All of us were disappointed, but Dreas especially took it personally. Uh, go ahead and listen in because uh, you'll get a good feel for who we're talking to. Uh, he's a real fun person to talk with, and I hope you enjoy what you're about to hear. So without further ado, here is Dreas Sanchez on the Christian Humanist Podcast talking about Zealot. I only say it's so good because I really felt like an atheist feels. I really do. <laughs> all right, go ahead. Tell the story. Well, so first of all, I'm a Falcons fan, diehard Falcons fan. I mean, ever since I was in fourth grade, I've played football and I played Madden. I actually, before I joined the military, I played Madden competitively where I was sponsored by Fox Racing and I used to go to certain places and wear their gear and play tournaments. Man. So I've always been into football, hardcore, and the Falcons have been my squad. In fourth grade, growing up in New Mexico, I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico. We don't have a football team. And so um, I was in Pop Warner, the you know football league sure. for kids, and I was on the Atlanta Falcons. And so ever since, I just stayed an Atlanta Falcons fan. So <clears throat> that was 97. Okay. Or no, that was 96. The next year was 97. That's when we went to the Super Bowl at Chandler. Mm-hmm. Right? I remember. Okay, so it's been since that long since Atlanta's made the Super Bowl. So I'm, you know I'm it's also the Super aware Bowl, of that. I'm, a, I'm an Indianapolis Colts guy, so I know about long droughts between Super Bowls. Yeah, especially when Manning left, man. That drought is oh, You're telling me. You're telling me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so um, this game, I was, you know, I, I couldn't believe Falcons made it to the Super Bowl or whatever. So, I, and, okay, let me put a little background. The last three years that I've been here in San Diego, I coached high school football. And then a year before that, I coached semi-pro football. And then when I was in Hawaii in the military, I coached in the uh, Marine Corps team that we had out there. So I've always been strategically involved in football, right? Okay. You got you got these coaches that are, you know, Dan Quinn and uh, uh, Shanahan, mm-hmm. if I'm not, mis- not mistaken. These guys are professionals, right? They're at the top of their jobs. They're in the Super Bowl. They're at the best. Okay, so look at this. This is this is where the story starts breaking down and <clears throat> how I really felt. So I'm watching the Super Bowl. Falcons are up 21-plus points. I think it may have been like 23. I'm not sure how much. At the half at halftime. So we only have two quarters left. This is what you do if you're up at half. You run the ball. 
and you hike the ball in one second. Every play, and then you punt it. And you play defense. Because the amount of time that you can waste by just running the clock and then putting it down to one second, it will eat up the clocks, and you're up already, right? Sure. And you might even get first downs. And who knows? You might even score. And then you can hit them with a play action tough. So there's a lot of stuff you can do when you're up with a lead. Check this out. The Falcons ran the ball five times and threw it 13 times in the second half. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Not just that. Not just that. They were hiking the ball at the play clock with like 13 seconds, 15 seconds. I'm literally over here in the third quarter like, what is going on? Okay, and then what happens? They pass on second down. It's like second and 12. They pass, and that's when Matt Ryan got sacked for the fumble, and the Patriots got it. That's when the momentum started, and it was just all downhill. And I'm sitting there like, you know, of course, I've heard the conspiracies growing up. You know, football, just like wrestling. You know, wrestling (laughs) wasn't so real to me. And then I found out wrestling wasn't real. And so, you know, I've heard that about football, and I'm not a believer in that. But I was like, wow, this is rigged. Not to mention, not to mention that this year in the NFL, they had the lowest ratings of all time. That has a lot to do with people cutting cords and getting rid of cable. Oh, sure, and picking sure. up these other things, you know, like Sling Network and stuff. They don't really have, um, they don't really have live football games. Plus, TV broadcasting has went to HD TV. So if you don't have that type of ability to broadcast, it's not the same. So there's a lot of less people watching football. The ratings have been low. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, what's the odds? That, oh, we just have the greatest Super Bowl of all time with the greatest quarterback of all time because the Falcons played it like this. Now, I was like, I was literally so hurt. And I was like, you know what? Football's fake. I was like, it's it's fake. And I promise you, for like three days straight, I was depressed. I remember walking my dog and on the third day, oh, there it is. I didn't even see that one. The third day, this is this is definitely from God. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> resurrected on the third day. So uh, this dude, he he starts talking. He, you know, he's walking his dog, and he comes up. He's like, hey, what's going on, bud? I'm like, yeah, you know, just walking my dog or whatever. Not really trying to have a conversation, to be honest. Uh, at that point, I'm just, you know, trying to walk the dog, still kind of hurt. And uh, he's like, did you watch that Super Bowl, man? And I was like, yeah, bro. And he's like, yeah, what do you think about that? And I was like, you know what? Honestly, I think it was, I think it was fake, man. I really do. I think they just did it for ratings. There's no way a coach does that. Five running plays to 13 passing plays when you're up 21-plus points, hiking the ball on 12, 13, 14, 15 seconds, play clock. Nobody does that. Okay, and then so check this out. He was just super nice and talked to me. And he just broke some things down, you know, answered some questions, even though, you know, I might have been a little upset or whatever. He, he was nice. He was polite. He answered some questions. And then it left me to reflect and say, you know what? I think I was just mad. You know, I was just mad (laughs) at everything. Not to mention that I had like $600. Don't let my wife listen to this because I think I only told her like I bet $400. But I had money even riding on it. And so I was just really involved. Well, I did that because I was like, you know what? We're either going to go down in flames together, Atlanta, (laughs) or we're going to party together. Oh, man. I was just like, you know, this is my squad. I'm going to go all in. So you could tell how much I was just you know, involved in this game. And so when when I got disappointed, I was like, it's fake. And then, you know, I had time to think about it, and I was like, no, nah, I was just angry. So I relate that to a lot of, you know, and this is, of course, is not every uh, atheist, but um, 
I have a lot of friends who, you know, they have a lack of belief in God, and so they call themselves an atheist. And after talking to a lot of them, you know, I have the skeptics corner on Google+. And after talking to a lot of them, you know, we've been on there for about two years. One dude in specific for about eight months. You know, he just, he came to the conclusion, he's like, he, you know, he's, he's still not a theist. He wouldn't call himself a theist, but he's now, he would say he's agnostic. Because he's like, you know what? I think I was just mad at the whole God thing. And maybe there is a God, I just don't know. You see, so I felt that I felt that I was when I I swear I because I love football so much like an idol literally I mean it, it's it's its own religion it's its own community, and it's just like when I got disappointed it was like it's all fake, and it it just reminded me of that struggle of that feeling that you know you go through in your faith walk when you feel really disappointed by God right I mean it's just like no it's fake or it's like when you're a child you know like when your mom or your dad says no or you know you feel like they're being mean to you you're just like they don't love me but mm -hmm. it it just takes some time to clear up and and get on foggy and get the emotions out to really you know think it through but yeah that's my story about the falcons losing and and, and me serving an idol and betting just all kinds of bad stuff in that one <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i <laughs> i didn't know we'd start with confession here but you know since we already have i <laughs> hey let's call out our sins man it's the only way we're gonna grow <laughs> well at any rate listeners uh this is a special edition of the christian humanist podcast you've been listening to drea sanchez talk about super bowl and all sorts of groovy things uh, the reason that we're on today though uh, is not primarily to talk about football although i never object to that but because a conversation started up online about the book Zealot, 2013 book by Reza Aslan. Uh, Dreas, uh, in case we didn't mention it before, uh, we, he and I met at Theology Beer Camp in Redondo Beach, California back in January. Uh, some of you who listen to the podcast know that we did some special podcast episodes for that, so I guess this will be the uh, DVD bonus extra fifth episode from Theology Beer Camp, because... That's where we're connected, and the folks out there tend to like Reza Aslan, so we're just kind of going to dig into it. Uh, listeners, one thing that will be in the show notes, and you might want to have a look at it, I'd say skim it rather than try to read it, because once I reread it yesterday, I realized I went w way too long on it. Uh, I wrote a blog post back in 2013 when the uh, Fox News interview with Reza Aslan had sort of catapulted him to social media infamy. Uh, Jesus History and Interpretation in Response to Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, Nazareth, bah, is the name of the post, and there will be a link to it in the show notes. Uh, that'll be some of the subject matter of what we're going to be talking about today, and we're also going to dig into the book itself. Um, but, Dreas, I mean, you are reading the book right now. You are a, uh, let me make sure I've got this right, seminary student, seminary graduate, which one of those is true? Okay, so they're, the first one's true. I went to seminary for three and a half years, and my last semester um, is when you have to do your doctrinal thesis and everything. And okay. so um, and, and not and not many seminaries have an undergraduate program because this is a bachelor's program. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, this this is only one of few seminaries that have a uh, undergraduate program. Okay, But it's good. pretty it's pretty dope because it was four years. Well, you know, it's four years of studying just straight Bible. You learn Hebrew, you learn Greek. So you have four years. You don't have to take math and history. You know, you do have history, but it's, you know, Bible history or Christian history. Or you do have math, but it's. You know, you're learning about fractals and you're learning about how the math 
in the world from God. You see what I'm saying? So it's, I see it was saying. cool. It was a good amount of study. But what happened towards the end is when I stopped, you know, first of all, I, I stopped believing in inerrancy. And the school that I was going to was accredited by tracks. Tracks accreditation, it's a Christian accreditation, national accreditation, but you have to infirm inerrancy at the school to be accredited by oh, it. So okay, okay. I had some run-ins with some teachers and actually it was all it all came crashing down <laughs> in my um um my stewardship class. It was a it was a class on stewardship, but it was really a class on like how to manage your money. But it was okay. just called stewardship. And in that class they threw in, you know, that God the Bible says God wants us to be stewards of his creation. And so that was the theme. And so our our project at the end, which God approved the second week, the project at the end, I asked Professor if I could do how do we be a good um, how do we be a good steward of the text? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was like, Yeah, I guess you could do that. And so he he approved of it in week two. And I even submitted a rough draft to him in week five, which I don't think either one of those he really looked at. Because by <laughs> by the time the, the project came, I used a lot of biblical reception history and uh, reader response criticism. Okay, okay. and so bibi- biblical reception history. So I used uh, Brennan Breed's nomadic text. He's a PhD at Indiana University, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, basically biblical reception history, for the listeners who don't know what it is, it's it's us looking at communities different communities and seeing what kind of text they have because different communities had different versions of text, different variations, different texts in, in itself, right. Depending on Mm -hmm. the sect or just even the location. And so, um, what biblical reception history does is it looks at each community and their received biblical documents, quote unquote. Right. And so then it's a study of comparison of these communities and, their received text and what they, what text they have, you know, and, and, you know, which version and whatnot. Because for a lot of people, if you don't know, there's, you know, for example, Bell and the Dragon, it was in the Greek Septuagint, you know, the, the earliest versions of the Greek Septuagint that we have today, but it got relegated out. It's no longer in the book of Daniel. It's mm-hmm. now in the Apocrypha. But at one point in time, Christians would have read Bell and the Dragon in Daniel as if it was part of Daniel. You see? Certainly. Depending so on what important. textual tradition you were part of, yeah. Exactly, and what community you were there and what you, what you guys had. So biblical reception history brings that to the forefront, right? And mm-hmm. so, mind you, I'm at an inerrant, this Bible's perfect, it's magic, all of this. I'm at a seminary, and so my professor got really upset. He actually told me, and I respect my professor. He's a very godly man, so I'm not trying to downgrade him, and I'm just telling you the interaction. But he was like... You know, he was like, I, I cannot believe you use this uh, project to bring in your liberal theology. And I was like, Professor, you approved this. If you didn't <laughs> want me to, to do this, why did you allow me to do it? And he's like, well, I didn't know you were going to bring in reader response criticism. I was like, but that's what biblical reception history is built into. It's part of the discipline. And I was like, do you even know what biblical reception history is? You know what I mean? I'm a bachelor student and this dude's a PhD, but... What happens, and I'm not downgrading anybody, but what happens when you take that fundamentalist track, you miss out on a lot of academics. That's why I really appreciate what you do and your work and your guys' whole team that you guys put these podcasts together. And I appreciate everything that you guys do because you really do an honest, you know, like I, not only was I reading your, um, 
your article on Reza, but I was reading the, also the article on um, Bar Ehrman. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I, I love I, yeah, how... Yeah, 2013, for some reason, I was writing long blog posts about Jesus books. Hey, bro, we're still reading them in 2017, and I'm eating it up. It's food. It's food over here for me, for real. I stay hungry. I think but what you. I'm saying is you, you, you actually, like, will break their book down as if they came in and wrote that. You know, you're, you're being super um, fair to their position, and you're not trying to twist their words or anything. And then you come down and give your opinion. So I love that. That's what you miss if you come out of a hardcore fundamentalist traditions you can't read any of these other documents don't go reading that stuff guys it's all safe over here only type stuff you miss out you really do and i realized that because i was a hardcore fundamentalist i was teaching apologetics at the rock church down here in san diego I had like 30 people almost every week that i was teaching just nonsense that i had no idea really about i just trusted the people that taught me that they had really looked into this and then come to find out you know, uh, during my third year, once I, uh, after my second year of Greek and I started reading stuff on my own, I started realizing some of the things that was taught isn't necessarily true. So back to the original question, I ended up um, leaving the seminary and I went to San Diego Christian College, which they only accepted 90 credits. So really I did like four and a half years, <laughs> but it was all paid for by the government with the GI Bill. So thank God for that. And okay. so I just got to learn. And so it was, it was more than a blessing to be able to study longer. And so what's interesting, though, is, you know, Tim LaHaye, you know, I'm those guys, the, yeah. the religious right and all those guys, right? The moral majority. Um, so Tim LaHaye and Creation Research and all those guys, they're the ones who put together the seminary that I went to, Southern California Seminary, oh, and then okay. the, all right. the school, San Diego Christian College. Um, so they're both founded by the same people. They're just accredited by different. I'm not sure how... But their uh, San Diego Christian College is accredited by the WASC, and then the seminary is accredited by Tracks. So, uh, do you know da Dr. David Jeremiah? Oh, I've I'm heard the gonna... name. Yeah, he's like an end times kind of, you know, yeah, hardcore yeah. dispensationalist. I mean, that, yeah, that's the context in which I've heard of him. I haven't read him, or uh, certainly haven't met him. Yeah, he know he says he knows a lot about angels and demons. So, if you want yeah, to know yeah. about that, go to him. Um, great man. They're doing a lot of stuff over there at Shadow Mountain, and so you know they're doing a lot of stuff for the gospel. I don't agree with their theology at all, but I'm not hating on them loving people. So, um, you know, that's, that's the tradition that's over there. And, um, when I, when I switched to, so at the seminary, they can be hardcore. Like they don't even have to graduate you if you don't affirm inerrancy, right? Cause they're basically mm -hmm. putting their hand on you and saying, we approve of this guy to be a preacher somewhere else in this town or whatever. Right. And so if you don't, obey their theology, so to speak, you'll definitely um, not have it fun over there. So when I switched to the Christian college, it's actually like a college, you know, it, you know, they have like a student body and they have like uh, homecoming and stuff, you know, they have some teams. Mm -hmm. The seminary is like a monk station, you know what I mean? It's like at the top <laughs> of the mountain, <laughs> you know, it's not, there is no student body, there's no nothing. You go there to study and then you leave and you come back to study more. And that's it. And so um, when I went to the school, it was kind of cool. You know, it was with young people. I'm actually 30 years old. And so um, it was different. It was cool because it was like my second time around. Because before I joined the military, I joined the military at 20. Before that, I went to college for like a year and a half. I went to the University of New Mexico. 
And uh, I stopped going because I started selling weed, and then I even got into selling cocaine and stuff, which is pretty crazy. Probably some of the listeners are like, holy crap, who are you doing a special interview on? <laughs> but it's part of the journey. It really is. And honestly, um, I, I would, I'm only here for God, and this is why you know I'm on this track that I'm at. Mm-hmm. And so um, I know I'm, I'm jumping around a lot, but I went to school out there, and then, um, you know, finished out here. So that, that college experience the second time around at being 30 this time, you know, it was way different. And so it was like... cool. <laughs> and I learned a lot at the seminary because at the seminary near the end, you know, uh, after I stopped believing in inerrancy and was just trying to figure out what the heck is going on now, um, the uh, the school, the the college, not the seminary, I learned from the seminary not to be, like, out in the open with my ideas, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I was bringing in stuff to the seminary, like, you know, um, Bonhoeffer or some Joseph Campbell or something, you know? And that's just, like, it was... I became an enemy over there. So I learned when I went to the college to kind of do it stealth mode, you know what I mean? And try to... Uh, you know, couch different terms and different languages when before I wouldn't even have tried to do that, you know, just sly as a snake, you know, gentle as a dove. And um, actually, Tripp gave me some good advice because I was about to get dropped from my major Bible doctrine at this this last semester, actually, because I just graduated. And um, Congratulations. Thank you. It was cool, man. It was a good time. And uh, I was about to get dropped, but Tripp had gave me some advice um, about a week after the uh, beer camp. Cause I was telling him what's going on, you know, I'm like, bro, because I got an internship with them. Because I was like, you know, I can't do these internships that they have for me. I was like, they want me to be telling people that, you know, God's commanding babies to be killed and Jesus coming back to kill everybody. Revelation 20, 14, 20, blood up to the bridles for 180 miles. One of my favorite verses. You know, they want me to be doing this. I can't do that. And, you know, I asked him, I was like, is there any way I can get an internship with you guys? And I did. And so I told him what's going on. You know, I'm at this school and, you know, the, uh, my major Bible doctrines teacher, he pretty much just did not like me at all. And so um, Tripp was like, well, if you ever get into any trouble, he's like, just just ask him to pray for you. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, at first I was like, he's just telling me this as a joke. But what's, what's interesting, you know, and it, it worked out really well. When I was about to get dropped from that major Bible doctrines, and, you know, I don't really want to go into the story because it'll really make my professor look like a bad person, what he did. But uh, he just blindsided me pretty much. was like, we're dropping you from this class. And, you know, um, I was just like, you guys, come on now. Just pray for me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and it worked. It did. They, you know, there was another professor in there, too, and they prayed for me. And, you know, the rest of the semester was, it was different. It was cool. You, you know, they were, they were more friendly towards me. And so um, I thought that was kind of funny. But, yeah, just... A lot of culmination of what I've learned on um, um, being on one side and then being loud and then being on this other side and, you know, having to go about that. So this is what's led me to you as far as I'm still on this journey of figuring out the story. So, Well, and it's interesting because the students that I tend to work with are on, I would say, an analogous journey. I wouldn't say the same exact kind of journey, uh, but the, the students that tend to gravitate to me tend to be the ones who, you know, come in, you know, real strong high school background. 
uh, and they get to college and, you know, they kind of get into their college Bible classes and they have a sense that there's something beyond what you get as a, a freshman, you know, intro to Bible student at Emmanuel College. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it's kind of fun to, you know, bring folks in and, you know, read some Wittgenstein with them, to read some Nietzsche with them, to do some, you know, mm-hmm. serious philosophical work. Uh, because, yeah. you know, a lot of times, you know, they, 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 they have a, an experience similar to what you're narrating. You know, they say, okay, this is, this is kind of what I was looking for. And then, you know, I mean, I, this is, you know, one of the places where Tripp and I differ. And, you know, those of you who listen to both shows know that Tripp and I are by no means the same sort of podcaster. Uh, but, you know, I, I tend to go to what the, oh, and I can't even think what, I think it's Clifford Geertz, but don't quote me on that, uh, calls the second naivete. So in other words, now that you've done the demolition work, now that you've dynamited everything, uh, what do we build in those ruins? Mm-hmm. And what I tend to do is say, you have a responsibility now that you have seen what it looks like on the other side to come back and serve those communities in light of what you know. Now, I'll grant Dreas that there are some communities that don't want you to come back once you've seen the other side. I, yeah. I will never deny that. But a lot of them really do welcome people who can think and who can write and who can bring a congregation into new ways of thinking. Uh, and, you know, I'll just go ahead and, you know, lay my, my cards on the table. I say that as someone who's been run out of three churches. So I <laughs> I know full well it's not every church that wants that. Yeah, man, it's good to hear, though, that you're still motivated and pressing on and that didn't uh, stop you. It's mm-hmm. nice to hear that. Well, at any rate, I want to talk about Reza Aslan because we've we've, yeah, we've we've started a couple times and then we've, you know, started talking about other interesting things. But uh, you are in the process of reading this book or you finished the book and you can tell me which one of those is true here in a moment. Uh, but what sorts of things do you see going on in this book that you find appealing? What kinds of things, uh, you know, do you think that folks who are on paths that are similar to your own could stand to hear about this book? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not done with it yet, but what's really uh, popped out to me just with my own knowledge and putting things together is, first of all, I really loved his like practical, on-the-ground ex- uh, description of Judaism and like what's going on within Judaism and some of the, you know, the temple rituals and purity rituals and things like that. Um, when he brought all that, you know, um, I really, I, I, I'm more focused in my entire studies. Of course, we got to do Old Testament in Hebrew, but I would definitely call myself way more of a, you know, a, a baby scholar in the New Testament in the Greek for sure. Okay. So um, learning a lot of this stuff was pretty cool as far as, you know, putting things together. What's really got me to, and this is where our discussion on Facebook had started, is so he has an entire different story of what happened to Paul. Right, right. And so for me, you know, I started off in the fundamentalist tradition, and then I uh, encountered, you know, guys like Peter Enns, where he's pointing out Paul is... Uh, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 10. I'm not sure uh, which, if that's exactly, but I think uh, it's 1 Corinthians 10. But it, where Paul says that, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, that Paul writes that the ro- water come, came from the rock that followed him, and the mm-hmm. rock was Christ. And actually in the Old Testament, you know, it's, there's only a two appearances of that rock. 
and neither one of them is making the notion that this rock is following them, right? It makes right, sense. Right. They needed to get water. So, of course, you know, the, the story writer is going to put in there how they got water, and Paul's just putting that in there. But it actually comes from, like, a Jewish tradition, according to Anne. And so... Oh, and a Greek tradition. I mean, that, that, that's what's interesting. The, uh, the allegorical tradition is at least as old as Plato, and, and Plato writes about it as if it's been around a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there that, you know, when I first learned it, I didn't see all these layers. So that was like a beginning to see like, oh, dang, look at that. Mm-hmm. Why would Paul be bringing that in? You know, and then you start learning there's different sects within Judaism. And you're like, oh, well, I never really imagined there was different. I thought it was just one gigantic religion that all got along and everything was fine. And they just handed it over to Jesus. You know, it's like kind of the, the narrative that I was given as, as a fundamentalist. So I seen Paul in that light. Then I got introduced to Anne's work. And then I got introduced to Michael Harden's work where he really kind of breaks down. Are you familiar with Michael Harden? Uh, I've heard the name, but I haven't read him. Yeah, he's a Girardian. He's really okay. influential with um, with the. I think his website is called Preaching Peace. Mm-hmm. Actually, Peter uh, Enns just. I've read Gerard, so go ahead. Yeah, actually, Peter Enns just did a started started last Sunday or last Wednesday. Actually, um, this is this is Wednesday today. Yeah, so it's the second class. Actually, no, today's Tuesday. Yeah, tomorrow the uh, second. By class the time we started. release it, it'll be another day. There you go. Oh, right on. Um, yeah, he did a class on the New Testament usage of the Old Testament. So when the old mm-hmm. when the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, he's doing like a, a six or seven week, I think maybe even an eight week study on this through Pe- Preaching Peace website. Good. So they're doing, you know, a lot of the nonviolent. He he's real big on the nonviolent atonement. Um, are you familiar with Matthew Destantefano? I'm not saying his name wrong, but on Facebook, he's kind of. No, I'm not. So go ahead and tell me about him. He's kind of on my pages too. He's he's like a young buck that's um, you know really been underneath Harden and and he's written a couple books himself and so he's he's kind of pushing this nonviolent atonement pretty heavy too, and so anyways back to Harden he's he has a a four hour or a four set series on YouTube. It's on his website too, but you can watch for free on YouTube. They put it on there, but it's on Paul and so he's basically breaking Paul down, kind of similar to the narrative that I was familiar with at first, but he's putting in things like. You know, Paul had this major deconstruction, you know, and I'm like, oh, I never really thought about that. Paul's out there killing cats because he thinks that's what God wants him to do, persecuting them, whatever you want to translate that to. Mm-hmm. And so then he has an encounter with uh, Jesus and he's like, hold up, this isn't right. I'm not doing what I, you know, what's right. He, and so basically from my perspective and, and in the way Harden's putting it, he's like, you know, he had a deconstruction and he had to go take a couple of years to go think this out. And so I'm like, wow, I never really saw these different layers. So, um, then I started really getting heavily into Borg and Croissant. I mm-hmm. love John Dominic Croissant. He's probably my favorite, um, New Testament biblical scholar for sure. I love Croissant. And um, his version of Paul, you know, I'm not sure if you've read the first Paul, him in, um, I think no, I've read a board, couple of crossings, but I, I don't recognize that title. Yeah. The first Paul, it was him and Borg okay. I actually was in it last night to familiarize with myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, and so he basic, they basically go in and, um, you should actually do a, 
a blog on this one, bro. This is a good book because it's it's called the first Paul reclaiming the radical visionary behind the church. Okay. So so they basically you go in and say there's three uh, Pauls. You know, there's the the radical Paul, and then I forget the second one that they call it, but then the third one's the conservative Paul. So there, I was just getting shown different stories of Paul, and so I was like, oh, this is interesting. And so they really, you know, they have a cup a, a different kind of spin on it. And then leading up here to Aslan, and, you know, Reza has his own version of, of Paul as well. So that's what led me to the discussion with you. And then that's when I was like, hey, bro, can I ask you some questions about it? Because I wanted to kind of hear your understanding of the story of Paul and what happened to this brother. And, you know, I'm just kind of putting things together for myself, really. Oh, absolutely. And, and just to give a little bit of my background so that we know or so our listeners know, those who haven't been listening to the show very long. Uh, my PhD is in English literature, but before I went to graduate school in English, uh, I did a master's degree in biblical studies focused on Old Testament in seminary. Uh, so I did take some New Testament studies classes, but uh, it, it's definitely been something that I've sort of picked up after seminary a lot more than I ever read in seminary. So, uh, you know, Dreas, I, I come to it... Uh, I'd like to think as a learned amateur more than a, a New Testament scholar. Hey, well, two minds are better than one, so absolutely, hopefully we can get absolutely. some good information out. So you wanted to pose some questions about my take on Reza Aslan. I'll just remind readers that you can take a look at that. Uh, the link will be in the show notes, but go ahead and fire away. Yeah, no, first I kind of wanted just to hear um, your version of Paul. Like what in your own, if you were going to teach a class and you had, to, you could just make up the content. Nobody was looking down on what you were writing or what you're teaching. What would mm -hmm. you teach the story of Paul being, you know, coming from, say, let's start with um, Paul's a super zealot Jew, maybe even a rabbi. And he, he's hearing about the Jesus movement. Mm -hmm. Then just kind of go from there. What do you think? Well, certainly. Well, first of all, uh, I've had the good fortune, and I, I don't count it as a virtue of mine. I mean, it is just I've been at the right place at the right time where I've been able to teach Paul basically the way that I would teach him if there were no one looking over me. So that that's the first thing I'll say is that this is the way that I have taught Paul. And if I, you know, we're in just about... No, I won't say any any context because I do change how I teach things based on what the students need. But if I'm going to start talking about Paul, the first thing I'm going to note is that we have other sources from the first century that talk about these uh, groups within Judaism, the sects within you know the Judaic tradition. And Paul is on this weird intersection between these traditions because the book of Acts tells us that he was somehow uh, involved with the temple because he's bringing back the believers to the temple when he rounds them up. But then in his own letters, he self-identifies as a Pharisee and as a student of Hillel, which should make him his own mortal enemy. Uh, so, I mean, right off the bat, Paul is a weird figure because in this hotbed of occupied first century Palestinian Judaism, he is a Pharisee, which is decidedly the militant insurgent party and he is also somehow affiliated with the temple which is effectively the tax collecting arm of the roman empire in judea 
So right off the bat, we've got weirdness. When this person, Saul of Tarsus, uh, first comes into the narrative in Acts, he is involved in the violent and probably illegal killing of Christians, uh, as you already noted. And so when he has his conversion, uh, and this, you know, I, I recognize and, you know, I had to write a paper on the divergences between uh, Paul's narrative in Galatians versus the narrative of Acts. I've forgotten most of that, I have to admit, just because I haven't stayed current with it. But, you know, the basic outline of the thing is that in the course of pursuing and persecuting those early believers, uh, St. Paul has a vision. Uh, he has an encounter with the divine. He has a, a vocal revelation from God that, in fact, the one that he is persecuting, and, of course, by this time, Jesus has been crucified and died, and he's no longer on the scene bodily. So Paul narrates his persecution of the believers as persecuting Christ. But the voice tells him that he is persecuting the Lord. And this is enough to, you know, turn him to basically the one force in the world that he thought it was worth spending a life combating. So it is a radical conversion, I would call it. Deconstruction, I think of as more French somehow. Uh, but certainly it's something that completely revolutionizes the way he thinks. Now, what's interesting about his letters is that what we're getting is texts that emerge from a few years into his travels and then a few, few, a few years longer into his travels. And then it gets so uh, tentative, I'll put it that way, that scholars disagree about which of his later letters are even him anymore and which ones are from other pens. Uh, yeah, I again, was ask you. Yeah, yeah that, I'll, I'll have to admit, I mean, I generally speaking, uh, you know, I don't bet on the Super Bowl and I don't bet on who wrote Paul's letters. Uh, neither one of those is just worth <laughs> a whole lot of cash in my book. I mean, I'm more interested in the contents of the book than I am in authorship questions, to be perfectly honest. Uh, you know, I mean... If, if I had a gun to my head, I would say probably all of them come directly or indirectly from Paul uh, and that, you know, his later letters, probably we've got people taking dictation while he is in prison. But again, is that something on which my faith rests? And, you know, if later on, you know, someone shows me that Matthias actually, you know, wrote those things and signed Paul's name to him. Is my faith going to disintegrate? Not necessarily. But, again, not a big question that I spend a whole lot of time on. So when Paul writes these letters, and let me just stick to Galatians, Romans, 1 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, the ones that are sort of the undisputed Pauline correspondence, he starts to talk about this person, Jesus, as someone who, in his crucifixion, brought death into the life of God uh, who was vindicated by being raised by the Father, and who in some way, and again, I'm not willing to put a whole lot of chips on you know the mechanics of it, because I don't think it's a mechanical question, in some way became the presence of the Creator God in a particular place at a particular moment, speaking a particular language related to a particular family. The utmost of universality becomes the utmost of particularity, and as you noted, Dreas, uh, this is something that is a radical break with not only the philosophical traditions in Athens and other cities that he would have visited, 
but it's a radical break with most of the currents of Judaism of the first century. Now, I have to say most because I have recently read uh, Daniel Kirk's book, A Man Attested by God, and I interviewed him on uh, Christian Humanist Profiles. And he does well to note that there are currents in Second Temple Judaism that have human figures taking on the presence of God in some real way that isn't identical with the sort of pre-existent God or the pre-existent son of John 1, but certainly transcends the sort of wandering philosopher that sometimes you get from the historical Jesus movement. So I'm talking way too long here, so let me try to wrap this up. No, when man, I, you're dropping content. Drop that content <laughs> for free, too. When I, <laughs> so when I look at what Paul is interested in, he continues to believe that wherever the people are gathered, that is where Christ is. And that's very, very important. You get that in Ephesians, which, again, I think is probably genuine Pauline material. You get that in Colossians. You certainly get it in Romans. And he is supremely concerned with the fact that Christ, which is a divine gift, can become distorted by human sin in such a way that the salvation of the world might be in danger. And that's why he writes these strident, sometimes angry letters telling the people, you know, you are not simply living a good life or failing to live a good life as sort of private subjects of the Roman emperor, but you are the body of Christ. Uh, wherever you are, that's where Christ comes to the world. And if you corrupt that, either by, you know, drinking the communion wine till you're drunk before working people have a chance to have a drink, whether it is by separating yourselves into Gentiles and Jews and having separate communities, whether it is having sex with your stepmother, 1 Corinthians 5, I promise it's there. Um, all of these things for Paul are matters of cosmic significance. So one of the difficulties uh, with Paul for me is not authorship. That doesn't really keep me up at night. Uh, and it's not even the fact that, you know, there are some things like uh, the way that he talks about women, where he still talks of like a first-century Greek-educated Jew, that doesn't bother me. He was particular, too. What does bother me is this idea, and I don't think Paul invented it. You can see it in the Sermon on the Mount. You can see it in a lot of early Christian writings, that God's presence on earth didn't just become particular during the lifespan of Jesus of Nazareth, but it continues to be particular wherever the church is gathered. So, Dreas, I mean, I, I, I just rambled on for, I think, 12 minutes. Uh, <laughs> you know, what else about Paul would you want, to, would you want me to talk about? Yeah, so, um, yeah, and I appreciate all that. That was some really good stuff. So, um, Paul and his... How do you put together the story with Paul, you know, dealing with James and Peter in Jerusalem... And how that went down. Oh, I know okay. Redla makes Oh, makes that's good. That's good. That's good. Cause that, that, so. Yeah. And, you know, this is in the, uh, I want to say the, the last third of Aslan's book. He deals with uh, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul and Peter. And the story that Aslan tells, I'll go ahead and set up his story before I kind of give my alternative, uh, is that Jerusalem was the sort of center of the Jesus movement and that Paul was the marginal renegade. However, when the famine hits Palestine, which the New Testament documents in several places, uh, 
James and Peter kind of have to play ball with Paul, uh, but they also make sure that he is publicly humiliated by making him shave his head, by making him come to them and ask them permission to bring in Gentiles, so on and so forth. But then, as Aslan tells the story, once Paul leaves on his next journey, they start sending their own agents out into the churches and forcing them to get circumcised, to eat kosher, basically to become Jews before they become Christians. And for Aslan, I mean, it's a very tidy story, which always makes me suspicious when stories are too tightly edited. Um, But, you know, you really have a sort of continuous um, single story of this rivalry between James and Paul. If I were going to offer an alternative to it, I would say that when you get the initial diaspora, uh, whether you take the, you know, the initial scattering of the disciples after the resurrection as the beginning of that, or whether you take Acts, whatever chapter that is, when they're chased out of Jerusalem as the beginning of that. Either way, you have communities that hear about Jesus and start to become disciples of Jesus, and some of them do so in sort of poisonous ways. You know, you've got the people that Paul is dealing with in Galatians who want people to become circumcised and eat kosher and so on and so forth. You get people like the people who are being addressed in First John who are sort of proto-Gnostics. You know, you've got Jesus and that's fine, but we're going to give you the true knowledge of God that lets you supersede Jesus. And First John has to repeat over and over again, uh, if you are in Christ, you're not missing the mark. You're already there. Uh, now the way I translate that is a little bit different than the King James. Uh, that's one of those passages that I think gives people fits when it shouldn't, uh, because the way the King James translates it is if you are in Christ, you do not sin. And they say, Oh no, I'm in Christ. And I, you know, I looked at a pretty girl for a bit too long and it's like, no, 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 that's not what he's about. That's Mm -hmm. (laughs) what he's about is there's a mark you're trying to hit. These idiot Gnostics are telling you that you haven't hit it yet with Jesus I, writer of 1 John, am telling you, if you are in Christ, you, you're not sinning. You're there. Yeah, you've already hit it. Yep. Yeah, don't <laughs> stop. You're there. It's good, man. Um, but you've got those communities. You've got the ones in Corinth that Paul has to deal with. I mean, if you look through the New Testament, you see a broad span of different kinds of communities, different kinds of problems that arise in those communities. So when I see the Judaizers... Uh, as you know, these figures are called in, in most intro to Bible classes, certainly the ones that I've taken. Uh, I see those as sort of those splinter groups arising from that diaspora rather than being a tidy one-to-one-to-one correspondence with James and Peter in Jerusalem. Does that make some sense? Yeah, definitely. So what else, what, what else is going on with this book? Because let, let me go ahead and, I mean, you know, talk a little bit about that tidiness because honestly that's something that that disturbs me and it might be just my own personality defect dress that i always admit that as a possibility but the way that aslan lays things out everything comes back to the paul james rivalry everything comes back to james as the real center of the church and paul as the usurper basically everything in early christianity comes to back to sort of one geographic center the way that aslan tells the story And I'm more inclined to think of early Christianity as more of a diaspora phenomenon that is scattered out over not only the Roman Empire, but on into the Parthian Empire. You know, some early Christian communities go as far as 
Uh, I forget which dynasty, China, because my Chinese history class was way too far long ago. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, when you read this, I mean, does his story of a a very centralized Christian story resonate with you, or am I the only one who's hung up on that? No, I definitely... um... I definitely see how he tries to culminate that back all to James. Um, I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm obviously still putting it all together, but as of right now, if you would ask me what I thought, I would say that there were different sects. You know, you have the Johannine sect, you have the Pauline sect, mm-hmm. and then you also have the Jerusalem sect, which is James and Peter. Okay. And so um, I, that that's as far as, from what I what I seen, and I really am heavily influenced by, um, and I know you did a a, set, a piece on it online, the Bart Ehrman piece, you know how uh, yeah, Christianity piece, kind of evolved. Five hundred pages. <laughs> yeah, that uh, it was. It's some good work. Anybody that wants to, you know, skip out on the entire book, don't recommend that. But if you want to, because time sakes, you know, someone has definitely put it together very succinctly and very fairly. So. Check out his work for sure, but yeah, I kind of, I kind of feel as far as right now, I'm persuaded to believe, which obviously, you know, and I really like what you said earlier, and I'd say the same thing. My faith isn't dependent on any of these. I, I'm a strict believer, sola fide, God alone. That's it. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I, I'm persuaded to believe Christianity kind of evolved um, into different sects, and then by the time. Constantine comes on the scene and he wants to bring everything together and then they set up the councils to figure out the divinity of Jesus. That's when it starts becoming less of a wide sect and more of a closed in, you know, a one type of church idea. But you still have these other sects that are continually to spread, you know, and there's even probably some sects that we haven't discovered yet. Who knows? We might have another Qumran discovery and say, oh, there's oh, a different certainly. sect over here. Or another so, Nag Hammadi or another, yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that's what's so cool about archaeology. It's not all Indiana Jones stuff. Exactly. And see, now that's why, going back to uh, the seminar I went to, and they're accredited by tracks, inerrancy. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, I was like, that doesn't seem very smart to do if you're putting all your baskets on inerrancy. Say we come and we find some... Uh, which I would already argue we have found evidence that destroys the inerrancy argument. But just say we found something that was definitive, that scholars were all, you know, like, oh, look, this this wasn't without error or whatever. And then now what do you do with your entire school, your entire accreditation? You know, you've mm-hmm. built it on a rocky foundation. It shouldn't be built upon these these little side things. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and this is why, you know, the... You know, the, the listenership of the, the Christian Humanist Radio Network, I mean, I enjoy talking to these folks because they do span, you know, a broad range. And the folks who come back, you know, tend to be, at the very least, willing to hear different kinds of perspectives, right? You know, I mean, uh, here in, in this academic semester, you know, I, I reviewed a, a, what I would call just a, a super Calvinist book by uh, B.A. Bosserman. Uh, and then immediately, you know, followed that with an interview of Daniel Kirk about, you know, his very historical critical take on the Synoptic Gospels. And, you know, what one of the things that's either my defect or my gift, I haven't decided which, and different listeners will tell you different things, is that, you know, for a fairly broad range of ways of reading, I'll call it that, uh, I tend to hear it and I tend to say, okay, 
that's good, teach me more, right? Uh, I want the Calvinists to teach me to be more Calvinist. I want the historical critics to teach me to be more historical critical. I want process people to teach me to be more process. Um, I love that. Love I, I, that I know I can't be all of those, uh, and that's why I've got a guilty conscience, uh, but I still want to hear more. And you're an example, and I promise you, the you know, um, like I said, I'm 30, so I'm in the millennial generation, mm-hmm. you know, and I've, I've done some reports on the millennials. I think the last one said something like four out of five millennials are spiritual but not religious. Right. They're not saying no to God. They're for God. They're just not for religion. So when somebody like you is still able to stand and be like, yo, I still follow Jesus, and I have an open mind, and I want to be challenged, and I want to hear all these different views, that's such a good example for the people growing up, because for one, they're not going to be in religion, so they're going to be looking for that kind of uh, posture. And then for two, it just sets a really good example for the way we run the world. I know that something I don't see very often, I wish I did, especially in politics, you know, and I know they do try, but it's just this constant fighting is, hey, you know, I disagree with him. We disagree on fundamental ideas, but we know what's important, and that's people, serving people, helping people. So we come together and put our differences aside to help people. And so when you're able to hear all these different perspectives and the intention is to go and teach people in a fair way, it's, it's just it's such a good example, and it builds trust. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I have a, a little group online that I'm part of, the Way Station, and one of the things they put up the other day, it was transparency is the new trust. So, like... You know, actions speak louder than words, yeah, but some people will fake actions. Some people will fake words. But when you're transparent, it's a form of trust. And so when you're able to have this open mind and encounter this material and then be able to talk about it open-minded and, and saying, you know, teach me. I have a Ph.D. Please, someone teach me. You know, it's just <laughs> such a good example that uh, it really needs to just be set. You know, I wish the church would adopt this example, but it. it it's coming. That's what our prayers are for. Well, right? and it's already happening in a lot of places. I want, I want to put in, I, I, I feel like I'm always the person putting in a good word for established churches and public schools in these conversations. But uh, it really is happening in a lot of places. And, you know, that's not to say that there are other places where bad stuff is happening. But if you look around, there are places where good stuff is genuinely happening. Uh, and, you know, uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and, you know, tell you if you haven't heard uh, David Grubbs and Michael Farmer on the podcast make fun of me for being the Pollyanna of our trio. They do. It's because I am. But I do genuinely believe that this kind of good stuff is happening if you know where to look. Yeah, no, I agree. I uh, After reading um, Jonathan Haidt's book, Righteous Mind, mm-hmm. uh, I was you know, just really surprised that himself, he calls himself an atheist Jew, but he himself was really hopeful for religion. And he didn't want to get rid of it. And, you know, even though there was some critical things that he said about uh, the way we're running society, there was also a lot of hope in that. And that's coming from somebody who just studies civilizations and, you know, people. So there definitely is a lot of good happening out there. And I, I def- when I moved from the seminary to the college, even though it was still fundamentalist and inerrant and all this, because mm-hmm. at, at the school, at the San Diego Christian College, they're still teaching you know, that the earth was, that there was a flood 4,000 years ago. Okay. And that, uh, you know, it was six days. And so even though it's not as heavy as the seminary, because they're accredited by WASC, so they kind of have to be academic, 
um, I did see a difference in the way people treated each other, you know, especially when I started coming out with um, my beliefs, you know, quote unquote, my heretical beliefs. They didn't really treat me the exact same way as people at the seminary. So I saw just even a migration of that. And that was hopeful seeing these younger people and how they're a little more open minded, even in the fundamentalist tradition. Do you know what I mean? Oh, certainly, that definitely certainly. was was pretty cool to see that so yeah there is a lot of hope in the in the world and and i mean god isn't gonna let the world be destroyed because that means god failed right that's the mm. basileus aos it's the cleanup crew like <laughs> it really is it's 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 us that has to do the work but that's what we're doing together and trying to you know get each other to be open-minded so we can all um have a fair look at things. And then from there, you know, when we have a fair look at things, we discover truth and truth is what's going to help us move forward in the world and progress. All right. I want to ask you another question about Aslan to kind of turn back towards him. Uh, one of the things that bothered me, I have to admit, and like I said, my master's degree was in old Testament, not new Testament. But when he does turn to the old Testament, he, I thought, and you can tell me I'm wrong here. I thought he treated it as a sort of univocal text that only has one thing to say about the nations, which is they are not us, they are bad, they are evil, stay away from them, God's going to destroy them. And what what bothered me about that is that, first of all, it cuts off any possibility of Jesus himself doing anything creative with the Bible. But then beyond that, it cuts off the creativity that is sort of in those paradoxes and i would call them contradictions within the old testament right yes you do have ezra saying no intermarriage with gentiles but then you've also got ruth where a moabite woman is the hero because she marries a jewish man Mm -hmm. you have you know destroy all of them and their women and children and their livestock in joshua but then you've also got jonah where jonah is sent not to israel but to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the nastiest boogers in the ancient world to try to turn them to righteousness. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, when I read the Old Testament, I see an ongoing conversation, an ongoing dispute about the relationship between God and the nations. Aslan seems to see one voice. I mean, and again, you know, I'm asking you because you've read him more recently. I haven't really read the book carefully since 2013. Am I overplaying Aslan's position here or is that going on? No, I think what it is, is, you know, first of all, he's, he's writing a book about a rebel. Yeah. And so he's, he's, he's picking and choosing, which is fine. You know, let's just say what it is. We're not saying it's bad. We're just calling it (laughs) what it is. It's an observation. He's picking and choosing how to set the stage and he's setting the stage as far as like our nation and no one else, our nation and no one sure, else. Sure. And then so, so that really captures that rebel spirit, you know, cause uh-huh. then that's what he goes into for the rest of the book is how, um, you know, Jesus was this rebel and started the rebel movement or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that's really why he did that. And I, I honestly think that he was also going against a, um, you know, I hate to say it's the mainstream because I really, now that I've I've been exposed to progressive Christianity and liberal Christianity and process Christianity and just all these different versions, uh, even Eastern Orthodox, mm-hmm. I, I hate to say that it's the mainstream view, um, but this, this view of the Bible that, you know, everything in there is from God, inerrant, 
So if that's the case, then you do have these examples where um, God is, you know, if you read it that way in that narrative, God is telling people to go kill each other in our nation and not them and mm -hmm. whatever. So I think he was just really picking and choosing not only uh, how he wanted to set the stage, but also the audience that he was trying to speak to, in a sense, you know, because yeah, this actually got him, this got him really popular. CNN picked him up after this and they did that series, uh, The Believer. Have you seen that? I, I have heard about it. I haven't had a chance to watch any of it. Yeah, it's kind of a cool concept. So he starts off, he's like, you know, it's, it's him and he's like, yeah, I've studied, I've studied the world's religions for over 20 years and now I've decided to live them. And so each episode is him <laughs> basically like living a different religion in a sense. And so, um, you know, he really was trying to talk to the mainstream, trying to, right, if, you, if you've got a bunch of beehives, mm -hmm. he's trying to rattle that fundamentalist conservative beehive because he knows when you rattle it, that's good publicity. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, oh gosh. And see, I, I, this is one of those things that I get riled up about that other people are just a lot more sanguine uh, when people do things that I would call sloppy in the name of appealing to a popular audience. It makes me angry, and other people just say you're you're just getting too worked up, Gilmore. Uh, <laughs> yeah, do, are you familiar with um, William Lane Craig over at Biola? Oh yeah, you know, yeah, uh huh. Uh, yeah, so he he calls Bart Ehrman on this. He he says in a couple of his debates with him, he says, you know, there's the good Bart and the bad Bart. There's the good <laughs> Bart that's really honest with his scholarship. But then there's the bad Bart who's just appealing to those people who really don't know, and so he knows what to say to them to kind of, you know, right. say the right things well, for I'll that audience. Well, I'll admit, when I read Bart Ehrman's Jesus book from, I, I think it was also 2013, I, I was genuinely surprised to see him holding up an early high Christology, you know, in yeah. the Pauline epistles. I'm like, wow, this is not what I expected from, you know, Bart Ehrman. Because uh, mm -hmm. I had reviewed a couple of his books before that, and, you know, uh, I, I guess, you know, in, in William Lane Craig's terms, I'd gotten the bad Bart. <laughs> yeah. I, I only actually heard of Bart because of, um, his use or people's use within apologetics of him. So I was really big into apologetics. Oh, you know, fascinating. Like I said, I okay. apologetics. So people will always use, uh, Dr. Ehrman because he supports that early high Christology and he's an atheist. So it's kind of right, like, right. A, a, a way to slide in and be like, well, look at this over here's source. And so uh, that's how I actually found him and got really interested into his work. Uh -huh. It's so funny too, because I started one of his books, um, How Jesus Became God. And this was when I was hardcore fundamentalist. Now, is that and the I, one? Yeah, that's the one I wrote about. That's one of the two of his that I've written about, but go ahead. Yes. And so um, when I was probably like into chapter three or four, I was like, Oh, heck no, I can't even finish it. And so what's funny <laughs> is it wasn't until, you know, two, three years later, my deconstruction that I um, was like, oh, man, I need to get some books by Bart Ehrman. And then I remembered, I was like, oh, I remember I have that book in my Kindle I never finished. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went back in it and read it. And this time I wasn't having any cognitive dissonance that was just jacking me up, you know. Sure. So it's just it's just interesting the journey. But yeah, Bart Ehrman, he's a good he's a good dude. And honestly, he's a really good dude. First of all. Um, his blog site, if you, uh, it's like 30 bucks a year, but all of his money goes to a charity. So I think oh, okay. last year he said they raised like 500,000 or something. Oh, okay. And not just that. that, his wife is a preacher, I believe. And so he's heavily involved in helping the church still. Mm -hmm. He's a good dude. He's just honest. Like this is how, this is how I, this is my position. You know, I used to definitely be all for the Trinity 
and all for the divinity of Jesus. But now, if you really want to know my position, I don't know. I don't know if Jesus is God. And it doesn't matter to me because I follow Jesus. And if at the end of it, it's like, oh, I'm God, by the way. And it's like, oh, that's tight. And if not, like, here's the father I've been pointing to. Okay, cool. Like, it doesn't matter to me whether Jesus is God or not because I don't believe that um, that's how early Christianity started with, like, you have to have this belief that Jesus is God. It's just about following me, following Jesus to become transformed along the way. And then if you decide you believe in the divinity, that's fine. But for me, I'm, I take an honest position. I say, I don't know. There's actually no way, like epistemologically, there's no way to even adjudicate whether or not Jesus is divine or not. I mean, is Julius Caesar divine? There's, there's just no way to know this. Obviously, we don't think humans are divine, but we think one is. And then obviously, I know there's a lot of nuances in what it means in divinity and first century Judaism. And so um, I just really like Bart's honest position, like, guys, I don't know. And that's the real position that I've taken is, you know, I don't know if um, Jesus coming back on a white horse out the sky and we're all going to get raptured. I highly doubt it, but I don't know. I just don't know. There's no way to even know. Like I section off truth claims, you know, there's theological truth claims really have no way to be adjudicated unless you take the presuppositions and the axioms of certain narratives, and I try to stay away from those. You know what I mean? I just try to have an honest. Well, it's interesting. I, I guess my position is that everyone is going to take something as axiomatic. Uh, yep. So I mean, we're forced you know... to. We're forced to. At the bottom, at the very basic level, you have to trust your own senses. Which, depending on your worldview, you're either trusting it as a random chemical pot of stew emotions and <laughs> just you're in your brain or you're trusting it because I trust my brain because God made it even though I understand my brain could still be wrong sometimes hallucinations you know all these different things dreaming but at the same time I I am created by a loving father in a sense and these are all metaphorical terms obviously but a loving father that <laughs> gave me the ability to know the environment and to know him in a sense and so that I trust it for that reason. So at the very bottom line, even an atheist or somebody who wants to argue they don't believe in God, you do trust in something because you have to accept axioms. You have no choice. Right, right. And this is where my inner rhetoric professor comes in because I love jacking with people when they say everything's metaphorical. I'll say, well, you realize metaphor itself is a metaphor, right? Yep, that's the paradox. <laughs> and, uh, you, uh, you know, it's, it's not Maslow's hierarchy. It's... Um, Whose is it? The steps of faith. I had just put it the other day too on my Facebook. Um, oh, different I'm... levels of faith. Um, hold up, I'm about to pull it up right now. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I was going to say, I mean, I know Maslow's hierarchy, I know Kohlberg's development. Fowler's of... seven stages of okay, yep, faith yep. development. Uh -huh. Yeah, and if you're not around, you know, if you're not headed up this, you know, ladder, so to speak, on the on the different stages, you're not going to be okay with that paradox that you just dropped on us. You know what I mean? <laughs> it might really bother you, which if something like that is bothering you, in a sense, it's kind of keeping you away from the peace that God gives us when you trust in God. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and honestly, you know, like I said, this is part of what has kept me affiliated with established churches. And I say that, you know, and I'm, I'm, I realize I'm on a loop now, but as someone who's been chased out of three of them, but I try to stay affiliated with institutional churches precisely because 
having received that gift of education myself, I do have a sense that now it is my responsibility to help other people with what I've been given, right? Yeah. Uh, And, you know, for that reason, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I've been listening to, you know, a few recent uh, homebrew Christianity episodes here lately where, you know, Tripp just gets really into the, you know, everything's deconstruction, yada, yada, yada. And I think, yeah, I mean, that's, that's fine if you are on that very abstract level, but the way that you actually conduct and order your life is going to have some kind of axiomatic root. Yep. And yeah, so, there's no way to not. Yeah, yeah. But it's beautiful. It's the it's the really it's the ecclesia, you know, and it's sure, sure. it's the body of the ecclesia. You know, you have this part over here who's doing this for the body, and then you have this part over here who's doing this for the body. So, mm-hmm. um, I know as a person who's been on this journey, and as somebody who didn't grow up with a dad, somebody who grew up, uh, my mom was married and divorced like six times. You know, I just had a really rough childhood. Somebody who didn't have a lot of role models, you know, like I said, I was going to college and I started selling weed and cocaine. Like, how the heck do you do that? I didn't have any role models. I didn't have any groups. I didn't grow up in religion or none of that. So somebody that's, um, you know, that's that's one reason, too. After the military, I had my own, like, mental deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just looking for a community. And that's when Christianity came along. And then I met my wife and her family. And they were just great examples of Christians. And I was like, this is, this is it right here, you know. And I just jumped into it hardcore. And then when I realized a lot of this that I was taught in the beginning may not be true, at least may not sit well within my own spirit. That's when I started branching out to look for other communities. And so the fact that, you know, some, someone like your, your community exists or someone like Tripp's community exists or, you know, Peter Ann's what they're doing, these guys, I'm so thankful for the different parts of that body. You know what I mean? This mm, body sure. almost had like a veil over. I didn't even know this body existed. You told me about progressive or liberal Christianity or, you know, um, the the Briggs case in 19 or 1890 where Princeton and and Union Theological Seminary had a little battle about what inspired means you know mm, I would knew sure. nothing about any of this and so <laughs> coming coming to view all this and learn it and then find communities that are discussing it but still have like a, a the the community is still put together like the community's not deconstructed right like the ideas might be but the community is still there the ecclesia and so I know I'm just super thankful for what you guys do in these other communities too. And I know that um, with the millennials, with the spiritual but not religious, and this gigantic amount of people, it's something like 90 million millennials. And then Mm -hmm. if you do the four out of five, it's something like 63 million people. So there's like 63 million 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds who are looking for a community of just teach spiritual stuff. And they just don't want that religion aspect. So when you can do everything that you guys are doing and talk about all these other traditions, it's just, it's ahead of its time. And I promise you, just like we're reading your article from 2013, you watch five or six years from now, I'm teaching high school football to these boys and they're, they're 15 year olds going to confirmation telling me they don't believe in God and their parents don't even know. So you wait till they get to be 18, 19, 20 and they're out of their parents. They're going to be searching on their own. And when they come to communities like this, it's just going to help them so much. And so I've, I've been on that journey and I appreciate what you guys do, man. All your whole team, shout out to to you guys. I'm glad to hear that. Well, Dreyas, is there anything else that you want to dig into? Because uh, I've, I've enjoyed this conversation, and I'm, I'm glad to talk more, but I also don't want to keep you away from your young children. Yeah, my wife, uh, she just had a glucose test. Uh, she We were due with our second baby in August, and mm-hmm. so she got my son. But they're probably about to be coming home right now, so we can wrap up. But All right. we could always do this again. I, I, I love to do this. 
just talk about these things, especially with people who are open-minded. And uh, and I, I love to share about it and start the conversation online. So I appreciate you guys, man. And I would love to do this again, too, anytime. Absolutely. Well, listeners, thank you for listening in. Uh, this has been a special edition of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This has been Andreas Sanchez. I am Nathan Gilmore. And I'll just go ahead and close with uh, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.